ask you, please, to turn in your Bibles again to Galatians. We're studying the book of Galatians. This is our 11th uh, sermon on Galatians this week. Again, turning to an autobiographical section, uh, which takes up approximately the first third of the book. And this is uh, verses, specifically this week, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. Um, the conclusion of this autobiographical section. Galatians 2, verses 1 to 10. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. The Apostle Paul writes, Then, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running, or had run, in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in, to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reported to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Isn't it nice to be able to say that? Thanks be to God for this, God's word. So, what good word does Scripture have for us today? Well, there are a number of good things. Scripture is always good, even when it tells us that after the sin of Adam, we will die. Uh, If you can find it in your heart, that's a good thing. Uh, Sometimes if you really see your own sin and you realize the day will come when sin will be done, you may even rejoice in your coming death. This morning, the good that we find here begins with a recognition of how important this particular section of history is, because this history shows us that the Apostle Paul, going through his life, first of all, went away from everyone else and had the Holy Spirit directly teach him the nature of the gospel, how it is that a man is saved through the death of Christ, but that when he was brought back under the influence of the religious leaders in Jerusalem, you know, the hometown of uh, Judaism, that even when he went back to those leaders, that he did not become subservient to them, that he did not come under their influence so that he found that the gospel began to be just chipped around and, and, and slightly amended, slightly changed, so that the people back in Jerusalem could have their pride saved. He, Paul, could have his pride saved, and everybody would make a compromise that was acceptable. 
But he makes it very clear that it was 14 years before he went back and had an association with them. And that when he went back to that association, it was a very interesting uh, joining together. Uh, you think of the proverb that says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And that really is the feeling, if, as you read this section, of how Paul and uh, Peter and James and John and all the leaders in Jerusalem came together. It was not sort of a cloying, sentimental, sweet association. But he came back and made it very clear he wasn't going to fawn over them. <laughs> he wasn't seeking their approval, but that he was willing to hear what they had to say. All right, you get that feeling. The Apostle Paul's keeping himself aloof as he tells this story. Now, why would he keep himself aloof? Well, here we see that the Apostle Paul is led by the Holy Spirit to go up to Jerusalem. And there he does bring the gospel doctrine he's been preaching to the apostles. But he does it privately. And again, likely because when something is real controversial, it's good to get some of the leaders together privately before it gets into the full congregational meeting so that at least there's some meeting of minds, even though there might still be a disagreement, you can get some of the, the red herrings out of the way, right? And so what is at stake? Well, we gather from everything that Paul has said so far concerning his unwillingness to have any of the apostles interfere with his preaching to the Gentiles, the gospel exactly as he received it from God. We get the idea that his submission of that gospel to the Jerusalem apostles is not the submitting of a man looking for approval from his superiors, but the submitting of a man seeking to know how others do or do not agree with it. In other words, Paul takes it to them on a take-it-or-leave-it basis. The Apostle Paul is submitting his gospel preaching to those holding the office of apostle with him, but it's clearly his commitment that if they don't agree or even disapprove of the gospel that he's been preaching... He will not cease the work that God has called him to. And he will not cease to preach the gospel precisely as the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. In other words, if you go back to Ezekiel and you read what God says to Ezekiel the prophet, he says, Son of man, I've made your forehead hard as flint. And why? Because he says, I'm sending you to a rebellious people. And when you take your message, they're going to reject it. And so your forehead is hard. Paul's forehead is very hard. And he's not going to give in to the apostles. He's going to go to them after 14 years, though. And that's a long time. Some of you haven't even lived 14 years. Uh, are you 13 or 14 now? 14. So that's a long time. It's longer than many of your lives. And uh, when he goes, he makes it clear that he's not just going to bow down to them. He sees that what is at stake is the Gentiles being forced back into the bondage of the Old Covenant through what? Through circumcision. Circumcision is the issue that all of this is playing through. He says in verse 4 that it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage, but what? We did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. It's a very interesting text. Um, look at your Bibles. Verse 4. Look down at your Bibles. 
It was because of the false brethren. Now, I keep trying to emphasize with us, it is not enough for us to say that we agree with the doctrine that Scripture teaches if we disagree with the method that the Holy Spirit uses to bring that doctrine. In other words, it's not enough for us to agree with the content of the message if we reject the rhetoric of the message. Do you understand what I'm saying? Part of the message that the Apostle Paul is bringing to that Jerusalem church and after that meeting to the Galatian church is not just that circumcision is wrong for Gentiles, but it is how important it is that circumcision is wrong. And you cannot separate the issue of the error of circumcision from Gentiles with, from the intensity that the Apostle Paul fights the battle. We always want to diminish the Apostle Paul. We always want to say that the Apostle Paul was you know, an ancient dude who was in a patriarchal culture and everything he did was a product of his culture except the essential truths of his theological message. And, and of course, I'm the one that can tell you how to separate the essential truths of the theological message from everything else that was crud about Paul. You get it? And certainly crud about the Apostle Paul is when he's involved in a debate and he says something as mean-spirited as this. It was because of the false brethren. I mean, come on, when is the last time you, in a debate with another Christian, called them false brothers? As a matter of fact, forget you, when is the last time you heard your father or mother do that, or your pastor, or even Billy Graham? The Pope is telling us that, you know, we Jews and, and, and Gentiles can sort of go, get together and, and maybe not even have the same covenant, but two different covenants. And this is the Pope. And he has more courage than most of us do. And so I want you to see that the Apostle Paul is fighting this battle at the highest pitch of expression because if you commit yourself to doing the truth of Christianity with the rhetoric of decadent 21st century Western culture, you'll lose the truth of Christianity. You can't hold to the truth of Christianity while rejecting the Apostle call, calling these people what? False brothers. What's at stake here? The Apostle Paul is saying that these people that came into the church and said Gentiles had to be circumcised were what? They were false brethren. Now, what is a false brethren? A false brethren is someone who claims to be a Christian and isn't. And you might ask yourself, how did the Apostle Paul know that? And if you're a coward, your answer to that will be, well, the Holy Spirit was speaking through Paul. <laughs> do you understand? That's always the excuse. Well, you know, the Bible can do things that we can't do. Jesus can say things that we must not say. The Apostle Paul... A patriarchal, sort of ancient, sort of Neanderthal dude that he was, could, could, could see into hearts in a way that we can't. But the truth is, you guys, when you have somebody coming into a church of Gentiles and saying that the Gentiles must be circumcised, the one thing you must say is, no, that is a destruction of the gospel. And the second thing you must say is, if you maintain that a man is saved by circumcision, or that circumcision is necessary for a man to be saved, you what? You are a what? You are a false brother. And all of a sudden, all of us go, oh, no, I couldn't say that. That would be ungenerous. You know, it takes all kinds to make up a church. 
some people are a little bit misled, but to call them false brethren, I mean, that, that really is rude. Now, why am I making such a big deal out of this? Because it's perpetually the case that with any doctrinal issue today, that we want to assume the best about our opponents. And then we quote all kinds of texts to allow ourselves to be, uh, uh, I'm sorry, but the word is effeminate in how we fight for God's truth. That's the word. It always used to be used in the past. That's always how the reformers would talk of it. They'd say, you know, these leaders are effeminate. It used to be that we expected our leaders to be men and to acknowledge what the issue was and how important it was. But today we don't do that. Today we want them to be soft in the way they fight, but hard in the principle for which they're fighting. Do you understand this? Rhetoric. And the most important thing I think today is on this text that you understand that all through this fight, the rhetoric is extremely intense. You're going to see this all through Galatians. And it's intense because the rhetoric has to match the issue. You, you can't fight for the survival of the human race as if, you know, it's a question of bananas or oranges for breakfast. You know? So the Apostle Paul says what? Look at the text. Look at the text. Look at the text. He says it was because of the false brother. He calls them non-Christians. And you say, yeah, but doesn't 1 Corinthians 13, by this same Paul, say that love always expects the best? And doesn't the Bible say that by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another? And so if we're supposed to show that we're Christians because we have love for one another, and the Bible says that love always expects the best, how could the Apostle Paul say that they're false brethren? And I say, look, all the time in your life you have to decide between A and B. And it's not always A, and it's not always B. And sometimes it's A, B, and sometimes it's B, A. And sometimes you have to make up your mind what it is. And it's not a denouncing, and it's not a denial of the truth of Scripture that by this wall men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another, and love always expects the best, in this case, to say these are false brethren. Because, of course, any time you're fighting for God's truth, it, you are fighting for the protection of particular souls, okay? And so really the question comes down to whether you love the souls that are in danger of being led to hell by the false brothers or whether you rather like the approval of the false brothers that, uh, you know, you'll call them Christians if they'll call you an intellectual or call you a temperate man. Do you understand that? And so you have to make a decision. You play to an audience. Now, this is very true when you're having such debates in public in front of a classroom, in front of a church, writing for an audience in a, in a journal or something, or a magazine. And, and there you have to make a decision whether you're going to fall all over yourselves uh, showing that you really do have affection and respect for your opponents, but it's a little collegial disagreement. You get the point? In other words, it's just a debate among brothers, and nothing great is at stake, but you yourself see it this way, and your opponents see it this way, and you can agree to disagree. Do you think the Apostle Paul is willing to agree to disagree? Not a chance. The Apostle Paul says what? Look at your text. Look at verse 4. He says it was because of the false brother. And then in case you didn't get the point that he's making a very intense judgment. All right, Judge not lest ye be judged. Well, the Apostle Paul is making a judgment. He says it was because of the false brother. What? 
secretly brought in. In other words, the Apostle Paul is putting on top of the accusation that they're false brethren, the accusation that they're not even fighting fair. Why? Because they were secretly brought in. He's saying not only do they not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but they were squirreled in, secretly brought in. You know how in the Psalms it talks about the enemies of the righteous shooting from the shadows. Okay? He's saying they're not even fighting like men. They're using cover of secrecy. Now, in a war, if a guy dresses in your uniform and then tries to kill you, what do you do with him? You don't take him as a prisoner of war, do you? You execute him. Why? Because he doesn't fight like a man. Okay, so the Apostle Paul's saying they're false brethren and they were secretly brought in. Who had, and then, in case you didn't get it, look at the text. What does it say next? Who had sneaked in all right, to spy out our liberty... Now, when you bring in this question of spying, you know that they're going to be executed because that's what a spy is. A spy is somebody who, in a secret, in a deceptive way, uses the advantage of making himself look like something he isn't. He makes himself look like a Christian when he isn't. He uses cover of darkness to enter, and he tries to spy you out. So the Apostle Paul is extremely intense about something very insignificant. Right? The very insignificant thing is a little thing called circumcision. Jews have been doing it for centuries. There's no reason why the Gentiles, when they came into the Christian church, could not also be expected to be circumcised. And brothers and sisters, I'll say this a hundred times as we go through Galatians. The truth is that had you never read the book of Galatians and happened upon it in the first time and found out it was actually a part of Scripture, let's say it had been lost and it was discovered, and you read the Apostle Paul getting wacko over the issue of circumcision, you'd think he was a madman. He goes completely against the culture of America today. The only reason we accept it at all is that we've, been grown, we've grown up seeing it in the canon of the New Testament. But the Apostle Paul looks completely disproportionate, out of whack. He just looks like he's a little bit... Uh, gone to seed. You know, the battles and all these threatenings and everything, maybe the preliminary stages of Alzheimer's. I mean, you get the point? You know, I, in fact, he's a little paranoid. I always fantasize how the Apostle Paul would take the Minnesota multifaceted personality inventory. You know, somebody's trying to get me. Somebody's trying to get you. You know, sneaky people who aren't what they say they are, surround me. And they're trying to spy out my liberty. But I'm not going to give in to them. <laughs> I mean, can't you see the parody Saturday Night Live would make of this? Look at what he says next. He says, verse 5, But we did not yield and subject to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. You know, this guy lacks a sense of proportion. You know, he's waving the flag and saying, I alone am standing firm. You know, he's an old codger. He should, be, he should kick off, you know. It's time for him to be removed from the scene. What was the conclusion of the apostles at the home church in Jerusalem? Okay, what was their conclusion? As they looked at this man, this little man with bad eyes, 
that everybody said, he's not much of a man. You know, Kierkegaard, the Apostle Paul wasn't a very serious man. He wasn't married, <laughs> you know. As they looked at this guy, what did they think? He comes storming into Jerusalem. He says, these are false brothers and they're trying to, you know, they're spying out our liberty. Boom, 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 boom. You know, and the apostles in Jerusalem with all of the security of being the brothers of Jesus, you know, of having all of the, the force of the Jewish culture behind them, you know, and they look at Paul and they think, dude, get a, get a, get a controller. What's it called? Get a grip. Get a grip on yourself, as Taylor would say. You know, take a chill pill, you know. So what do they say? Well, Here's what they say. From those who are of high reputation, da -da -da -da, on the contrary, verse 7, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. And then verse 9, recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Okay, so we have the issue of how the how the battle was fought, all right? And I'm 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 teaching you from scripture that you can't say that you hold to the truth that the apostle Paul gives in the book of Galatians and reject the intensity and the method that he uses to defend that truth. You can't do it. You have to see that melded together are both the truth he fights for and the way he fights for it. There are false shepherds in the church. There are false brothers. They do try to spy out your liberty. You must oppose them as the Apostle Paul has opposed these false brothers. You must call them false brothers. But there's a very, another very interesting thing here. Today, we're not just seduced to fight like women. All right? We're also seduced to fight as if nothing is really at stake. Okay? Now, think this through. The issue with the Apostle Paul that he's going through all Galatians and he's intense about here is the issue of whether or not what? Whether or not Jews have to be circumcised to be saved, right? Stripped down to its essentials. That's how the battle's joined again and again in the book of Galatians. Now, think, just for a second, think. Today, in our world, how is this same issue joined? Now, you have to think you have to mix up your brain and flip it around a few times to come up with what it is, okay? Because it's, it's, it's convoluted today. But it's the same issue. Think about it. In America today, what is the central reality in any discussion of Jews? What is it? You don't pass over it. You can't bypass it. You can't avoid anybody ever thinking of it anytime the word Jew is said. What is the issue? The Holocaust, Okay? You can't deal anything having to do with Judaism, Jews, anything, without having it in the context of the Holocaust, when millions of Jews were murdered. All right? So instead today of us having what? Instead today of us having a pressure from the Jews that the Gentiles have to become Jews, all right, in order to be saved, what we have today is the Gentiles saying that the Jews don't have to become Gentiles to be saved. Now, that's maybe a little bit of a stretch, but, but walk with me a little bit. 
In other words, today the issue is not what the Gentiles have to do. Today, because of our sympathy in the post-Holocaust world, the issue is what the Jews don't have to do. In other words, today the Jews don't have to come to Christ to be saved. Today, because we're all sentimentalists and we want to act like we don't have any anti-Semitic tendencies in our bones because we're fearful of the Anti-Defamation League, all right, today we say that the Jews are fine just the way they are. Okay, do you understand this? Now let me ask you, is this love for the Jews? Is it love for the Jews for us today to say, well, you know, the Gentiles don't have to get circumcised, but you know, the Jews don't have to come to Christ? A number of years ago, after growing up at College Church in Wheaton and sitting under uh, my father and, and another man named Ken Hansen teaching covenant class, I was talking to a man who for years had been in covenant class. Uh, he was a voice. That was his job on, on, on commercials. You heard him all over the country with the biggest accounts. Uh, had a velvet voice. He'd started up in radio and it was an infant industry and grown with it. And he was a converted Jew like Bob Kapowitz in our con con congregation. One year I went to General Assembly of the PCUSA and the issue before it that year was uh, a paper on the covenant that God has with the Jews. And the paper was rewritten at General Assembly. And on the committee that rewrote the paper at General Assembly was a woman who had been in this class, this covenant class, at College Church in Wheaton for many years. She was consciously an evangelical, held to a high view of Scripture. And so she went into this battle behind closed doors of, of dealing with this paper. And... After a while, everybody in that committee came out and announced to the world that, the, that both the evangelicals and the liberals in the committee had come up with a great compromise and had rewritten the paper, and it was a wonderful paper. All right? Now, this is somebody who spent years being taught by Wheaton and Moody Christian Bible scholars. All right? And she came out of that committee, and this was no dumb woman. Very bright. She came out of that room and announced to everybody that there was a wonderful rapprochement. They had rewritten the paper. It was now a good paper, and we could all pass it with confidence at General Assembly. And do you know what the paper said? The paper said that there are two parallel covenants, one for the Gentiles and one for the Jews. Do you understand this? In other words, the paper said that the Jews do not need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now ask yourself, how would an evangelical come up with thinking that's a good thing and help producing it and help arguing that it should be passed? And the answer is, because we live in a post-Holocaust world. And again, you need to understand the power of sympathy and kindness and all these things that we all want to be to one another, causing us to turn from the true gospel. All right. How many people have made how many mistakes because they want, they're afraid of not appearing sufficiently progressive to other people? That's a quote of a French poet, but I don't remember his name. All right. And so she came out. She told all the evangelists a good paper. The paper passed. We all went home. Well, after we went home, I had this man that I told you about, this converted Jew who lived in Chicago, come up to my church because he has memorized whole books of the New Testament. And I asked him to come up and in an evening service to recite the book of Philemon. 
And it's fantastic. Because he, as a Jew, would put into it all of the irony and the sarcasm and the anger and just everything that's human about that book. And, and he'd do it from memory, and it was a fantastic. And during the course of the weekend, we got talking about this paper that was written and passed. And he said this to me. He said, you know, my pastor, I think it was John Buchanan at 4th Pres in, uh, in uh, downtown Chicago, if you ever go on Michigan Avenue, it's this huge Presbyterian church there. He said, my pastor and I, because he had moved into Chicago and was now going to that church, we go running once a week. And he said, you know what I told my pastor recently? He said to him, um, he said, I'm leaving our church and I'm leaving the PCUSA. And, and the man said, why? And he said, can you imagine how I feel as a Jew for my church to tell me that I never needed to place my faith in Jesus Christ? Listen, you're going to have pressure on you constantly to deny that you're anti-Semitic. They might not use the words. They'll just ask you to show that, that you accept Jews. And you know what accepting the Jews means today? Not making them subject to evangelism. And you know what not making them subject to evangelism means? It means arguing that they have a perpetual covenant that exists on a parallel plane with Christians, namely Gentiles. That their covenant is still the same, it's still valid, it's still good, and it'll still lead you to heaven, but that Gentiles can come through Jesus. That Jews don't need to, all right? And why will they tell you that? Because they'll say that it's genocide for you to try to evangelize Jews. To them, you're wiping out their ethnic identity. But what if them affirming their ethnic identity and therefore denying Jesus Christ, who was a Jew, who was what Isaiah 53 all pointed to, what if that requires them to go to hell eternally? What if what Jesus said, can you imagine what that father will do to those servants, those wicked servants, you remember, who killed the son? Can you imagine what the father is going to do to the Jews who absolutely deny the divinity, they deny the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ, those who refuse to give up on their ethnicity and to come to the cross of Jesus Christ as they see it? Can you imagine that? Listen, the Apostle Paul had his pressures and he fought with his intensity and God was pleased to use him to defend the gospel against these false brothers who secretly had entered in to try to spy out their liberty. And today, it's the same issue. Sure, the battlefield has changed a little. But it's exactly the same issue, only today it's in the post-Holocaust world. And once again, the issue is, do the Jews or do the Gentiles need to come to Christ? Is Christ's work sufficient? Is it valid for both Jews and Gentiles? And when you look at these... When you look at these arguments in the book of Galatians and you think, well, I'm glad that issue was settled back then, and then you fall into complacency feeling that, well, everything's at peace today, you're not looking at the world with the eyes of Christ. There's absolutely no way you can read or hear anything today about Jewish culture and what it means to live in a post-Holocaust world without you seeing that the one thing that's absolutely certain is that Christians are never to evangelize Jews. You know, I'm told, I read, that our great ally in the Middle East, Israel, if you're Jew 
and you've converted to Christ, you don't have the right to return to your homeland. What kind of civil liberty is that? In other words, if you have come to Jesus Christ, by definition in the state of Israel, you have become a non-Jew. Do you understand that? And then we sit here in America and we kind of overlook the whole Jewish-Gentile conflict. We look, overlook the Jewish community. We, do, we try not to listen to all the debates over anti-Semitism. We don't mind when Pat Buchanan is, is absolutely hung out to dry publicly as an anti-Semite or Joe Sobrin. We don't care when uh, Richard John Newhouse and uh, the editors of the National Review trash people publicly call, saying that they're anti-Semitic. Because after all, it's all politics. Listen, don't ever forget, there is a reason that the Pope today is blurring the line between the covenant of Christians and the covenant of Jews. Okay? This is not an accident. This is the evil one's schemes. And don't forget that what is at stake is the salvation of the people of God, the Jews. They may not come to their reward except through the Lamb of God whose blood was shed for the sins of the world, of both the Jews and the Gentiles. He is the Jewish Messiah. And when we go into the showing of uh, Mel Gibson's uh, The Passion, and you hear all these arguments over the anti-Semitism of this movie. And then you remember Pat Buchanan was branded and Joseph Sobern was branded and now Mel Gibson is branded. I want you to understand what is at stake and I want you to have the courage of the Apostle Paul and to fight manly. Now, I know Mel Gibson is a Roman Catholic of an extraordinarily rare kind, um, read about him. It, it's, it's, it's exotic. <laughs> he denies that this pope is a legitimate pope, if that's a hint. <laughs> okay? You know, he has a full Latin mass on the movie set every day that he shoots movies. Okay? I'm sure there are things about this movie that are bad, and I'd like to hear some of you debate the issue of whether it's a violation of the command, thou shalt not make unto thyself any graven images. You know, is the representation of Jesus allowed to Christians visually? It's a good debate. It might be prohibited. All right. But make no mistake, in these arguments, the post-Holocaust world, where all of us are trying to plausibly deny that we're anti-Semitic because our acceptance in sophisticated culture depends upon us doing this, don't ever forget that if we give up evangelizing Jews, we have betrayed the Jewish Messiah, who was himself a Jew. And that's the ultimate anti-Semitism. Do you think of anything more anti-Semitic than damning them to hell forever? If you look at verse 7, he says, On the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with what? A gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with a gospel to the circumcised. 
but it says the gospel. In Matthew 28, remember our Lord's great commission is not a commission that differed for the Jews and for the Gentiles. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. To go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Does this sound like one gospel for the Jews and another for Gentiles? Two parallel tracks that exist until Jesus returns? Galatians 2.16, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Categorical statement. Does this sound like a different gospel for the Gentiles and for the Jews? Going on, we may be justified by faith in Christ and what? Not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no Gentiles will be justified. Is that what it says? No, it says no flesh shall be justified. That includes Jews. Not two parallel covenants existing in harmony forever, but one covenant, and it is no man will be justified by the works of the law. No flesh. Galatians 3, 27 to 29. This text, that it seems modern day that the only thing it has to do with is male and female. But now, look at the context. Beginning with verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. And verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? When they came up to him and they said, you know, we have Moses, we have Abraham as our father, we're circumcised. What did Jesus say to them? Your father isn't Moses, your father isn't God, your father isn't Abraham, your father is the devil. And then he explicitly says why he accuses them of having Satan as a father. And what was the reason? The reason was that they did not recognize that he came from God. So in other words, a Jew who denies the messianic character of Jesus Christ has Satan as his father. Now, listen, brothers and sisters, I'm only quoting Scripture. I'm not making this up. That's why I keep asking. Look at your Bibles. See if what I'm saying is true. You know, as I read this text, I wrote this as I read it. I said, how good it is that neither the apostles to the Gentiles nor the apostles to the Jews there in the Jerusalem church sought to issue a compromise in order to allow the false prophets or the more rigorous among the believers within the home church there in Jerusalem to save face. Instead, it was a clean break with the past. They agreed with the truth that no, the Gentiles don't have to become Jews and to be circumcised to be saved. And then they extended the right hand of Christian fellowship to each other, and that was what they agreed on. I couldn't help but think of Chesterton saying this, people generally quarrel because they cannot argue. Or another Chesterton statement, he says, there are two kinds of peacemakers in the modern world, and they're both, though in various ways, they're both a nuisance. The first peacemaker is the man who goes about saying that he agrees with everybody. He confuses everybody. The second peacemaker is the man who goes about saying that everybody agrees with him. He enrages everybody. 
Between the two of them, they produce a hundred times more disputes and distractions than we poor, pugnacious people would ever have thought of in our lives. <laughs> Murkiness does not bring unity. Everybody wants to say that the church needs peace today. Well, yes, and how does peace come? Peace comes through proper doctrine. And if the Apostle Paul and Apostles had not fought through this issue with disagreement in Antioch, then disagreement in the council in Jerusalem, and then finally the Holy Spirit leads them to unity. If they had not been many enough to argue the thing through, we would not have unity today. And there would be this side of the church that would have been of the circumcision and this side of the church that would have been of the uncircumcision. Do you get it? But they were many enough to fight it through, to call each other false shepherds, to say they were spying out each other's liberty, to say there will be no compromise because the gospel's at stake. And today, the church is united. You don't have to be circumcised. Our elders will not ask you if you're circumcised if you come and ask to be members of this church. So we have unity. Why? Because they were man enough to fight through it and to say that they couldn't both be right. Again, do you see how this goes against the grain of the modern world? And so I ask you, what culture do you want? Do you want the culture of uh, academe, of can we all get along? Or do you want the culture of Scripture? Will you be comfortable in heaven? And then this final verse, they only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. I think it's... I think it's I think it's a kick that this is how this section ends. Now, why would I think it's a kick? Well, I think it's a kick because what you end up with is right after the Apostle Paul has had this intense fight over whether or not you have to do anything to be saved, you know, be circumcised, or you can think of any number of other things that you could add to the gospel so that there's mostly gospel and a little works. It ends with a work, a good work, remembering the poor. So if you're inclined to say that anybody who ever brings anything in to the gospel about what you ought to do is, is a legalist, remember, this section ends with him saying, yes, and, and we did agree to remember the poor. And yes, it was likely the poor in, in Jerusalem. All right, So there was a, a, an historical context to this. But remember, faith and good works aren't opposed to each other. Nobody thought these good works of remembering the poor were going to save them. But they all knew that the reason that God sovereignly predestined us and saved us, grabbed us, clomped onto us, lifted us out of the hole, was so that we would what? So that we would do the good works that He had appointed us to do from the past. And they didn't turn to the Apostle Paul and say, Apostle Paul, you just fought for us to have liberty, and now if you're bringing our liberty into bondage right away by talking about good works of helping the poor. You see... Foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. The Apostle Paul is not a pea brain. And the people he was writing to, he expected to understand that after he had given them liberty through the righteousness of Christ alone, after he had blown up to smithereens the works of circumcision and anything else that would save them, that for him to then say, now of course we are going to help the poor was not bringing them back into bondage again. It was allowing them to do the works that, to which they had been saved. Okay? And we'll return to this.
the Apostle Paul doesn't just say that he was willing to do this, but he also says eager, eager. In other words, he says, yeah, you don't have to push me to do this. I'm already eager to do it. May the word be pleased by our study of the word. Let's close by singing together.